listening to The Jim Laird Show on Body IO FM, where health and performance collide with your host, Jim Laird. Hello and welcome to The Coach on Body IO FM. My name is Jim Laird and uh, I am going to be doing some podcasts on here for Kiefer and I'm really excited about that. Um, I basically, as a strength coach, I deal with everything you could possibly imagine. I have to be an entrepreneur. I have to be a psychologist. I have to be, even though I'm not a nutritionist, I have to give general nutrition advice. Uh, I have to be, a, you know, everything you could possibly imagine, an entrepreneur. So this show is going to go all over the map. And I'm really excited today to have Dr. Kirk Parsley on. Uh, I've met Dr. Parsley at uh, Paleo FX through Rob Wolf, and he is an outstanding citizen. Um, uh-huh. Yes, you are, even if you don't think so. Um, Dr. Parsley has a very impressive resume. I'm just going to kind of briefly summarize it. Uh, if you want to check his resume out, you can obviously Google his bio, and it'll pop right up on your computer. But uh, Dr. Parsley is a, a former SEAL, uh, power-type athlete. He's done every kind of sport you can imagine. Uh, became a medical doctor, worked with the SEALs, has worked with all sorts of high-level executives. Uh, Dr. Parsley, kind of like me, uh, burned the candle at both ends, and then the wheels kind of came off, as Rob Wolf says. Um, so he's kind of basically uh, fixed himself and got himself back on track. Uh, and much like myself, uh, learning, you know, taking what he's learned from his own mistakes and helping others avoid those. So it's good to have you on here, Doc. Thanks, Jim. Great to be on the show and uh, great intro. I think that that completely covers it. And uh, anything, like you said, anything anybody else wants to know, they can just go check it out online. Yeah, I'm pretty easy to find. Yeah, absolutely. I listen to a lot of podcasts and, and, you know, I love hearing people's backgrounds, but, you know, it usually eats up like 20 minutes. And and by the time you get through the bio, then, you know, get to the meat stuff. So. Well, let's jump right yeah, into this. I, I did Wellborn's show not too long ago, and that that happened. Like it, it's like, hey, tell us the story of how this all came to be. And <laughs> just like ten minutes into it, I was like boring myself and going, man, this is gonna be like ten more minutes before I'm done with the story. And I'm like, ah, yeah, okay, I, just power through. Yeah, I yeah. understand. That's all right. Luckily, you have a very interesting background, or people would be sleeping. We're actually, I don't know when this will be released, but we're actually uh, recording on Victory in Europe Day. Uh, which is uh, really cool. I'm a, if anybody doesn't know me well, I'm a huge military historian and a huge military dork. Um, so even though I didn't serve in the military, I have a huge appreciation for the military. And, and of course, uh, thank you, Dr. Parsley, for your service. Um, you know, you're a former SEAL. I get people that come to me that want to train like a SEAL or they want to, you know, live their life with the intensity of a SEAL. Um, or, you know, they're, they're, they're burning the candle at both ends. You know, as a physician working with the SEALs, what are the kind of things that you noticed in this population? Well, I mean, I think the first thing to, to point out, and, you know, interestingly, this isn't even really well recognized um, in the SEAL teams at a cognitive level, is that, um, you know, the only, what people mean when they say they want to they train like a SEAL is that they want to train like a SEAL trains when he's training to become a seal um which is not a long-term sustainable uh, workout plan (laughs) it is deliberately designed to beat people down and break people down um and and the guys who transition out of that mindset when they get to the teams do a lot better 
um, than the guys who feel like that's the appropriate way, uh, that's the appropriate intensity uh, cycle for their workouts, which is basically just completely non, uh, non-programmed um, maximum intensity of anything. You know, uh, if it's you know if it's running a 10k, it's running a 10k. You know, with a heart rate just under explosion um and sleep deprived and sleep deprived and nutritionally deprived and drunk and whatever you know it's just like this who ya go get it lifestyle um and then the guys who come out um of seal training and say you know have uh, maybe some background or they've had some good coaching and um or you know they're just well read and they'll just say hey look you know this intensity is not sustainable for the long term and they they do what they can to mitigate that of course the job itself the training as a seal is very very difficult and i i don't mean to minimize that um it's so difficult in fact uh that during certain phases of trainings it's probably counterproductive to work out at all uh because it's the the actual training is plenty workout enough. Um, but you know, what happens uh, regardless of how smart guys are, uh, you know, once you do this for 15 or 20 years, um, you know, guys our age are still seals, right. And they're still trying to go out and do the same things that they were doing when they were 20 and 25. Um, and it's, you know, it's just frankly, not a realistic scenario for most people. Um, and you know, I, I don't uh, mean that in the fact in the way that they can't be effective seals, I just mean that you know they're they're going to have to expect some sort of performance decrements as as they age. Um, you know, as much as we all hate to admit that, you know, I couldn't beat the twenty five year old Kirk, and uh, nor should I expect to. Um, but uh, I mean, to, to answer your question, what do I see in these guys? Um, what I really saw when when they would come and see me, and, and keep in mind the the vast majority of my initial clients were, uh, you know, once I got to the SEAL team as their doctor, but the vast majority of my, um, you know, SEAL consults were guys coming to me uh, that were approximately my age. You know, they were around my genre of SEAL, so they knew me by name, and that's the reason they would come and talk to me primarily. They, they wouldn't trust medical providers by and large because medical can disqualify you from being a SEAL. So uh, they would come and talk to me, and it, it, what it, it really sounded and looked a lot like metabolic syndrome. Um, and I just couldn't believe it. I'm like, it doesn't make any sense. You know, they're, they're, they look way too fit. They eat way too well. They exercise way too regularly. Uh, you know, yeah. Okay. They have more body fat than they had when they were 20, but they're still lean by almost anybody's standards, uh, for, you know, 40 year old man or whatever they were at the time. Um, but when you do their blood labs, I mean, sure. Shit. I mean, they, they look like, uh, you know, a typical metabolic obese, you know, metabolic syndrome, obese, uh, male, but, you know, between 45 and 65 kind of, uh, you know, their, their lipids would look the same, their inflammation, their oxidation, their testosterone levels, their, um, you know, insulin sensitivity, their A1Cs, like, you know, everything that you kind of look at, uh, and then the vitals, you know, oftentimes they'd have elevated, uh, you know, blood pressure as well. So they kind of fit like the full gamut of mal- metabolic syndrome. Um, but with the exception of sleep, they were really doing everything they should be doing to not, or let me, let me back up with the exception of sleep and adequate recovery. Uh, I'll lump those two into one, into one sort of rubric for, for that purpose. Um, you know, they were doing everything right. So, um, I didn't have any real background in sleep, but that's, 
really what I where I felt like the big problem was. So I started just digging down that rabbit hole, and you know, here I am, whatever it is, eight years later, uh, you know, still still digging, and, and the rabbit hole is just becoming uh, more and more of a labyrinth. So. Yeah, and that's probably one of the biggest things I deal with is I get you people that come to me that either done nothing or they're exercising like crazy and they're, you know, they're going backwards on their goals, which most people's goals is to look good and feel good. And it's kind of hard to explain to people that you can look super fit and be doing all sorts of things and be dying on the inside. I think that's a hard, a hard concept yeah. for, for people to realize. And, you know, Mark says, and the opposite of that, too, I think, you mm-hmm. know, a lot of people don't realize that, you you know, a lot of people will equate fitness with being some kind of Olympic caliber athlete. I mean, it's right. just not true. Like you can be a really fit, badass looking guy and have, you know, a very, a, a fairly moderate workout program. You don't have yep. to train like an Olympian, right. you know, to look pretty damn good and perform pretty damn well. Yeah. Mark Sisson talks about, you want to train to look good, not, you know, necessarily be a performance beast. Um, and you know, it's a good point on, you know, he talks about a lot about, uh, you know, how a lot of the marathoners he used to train with are all dead now. Um, yeah, you know, absolutely. Yeah. Shocker. Yeah. You know, I, I sent you a picture, uh, like last week, uh, of a, of a guy who was running a boot camp at, at four fifteen in the morning. Yeah. And, yeah. um, you know, I, I, and Rob and I have kind of played around with this and we, we both kind of feel if I could go back in time. You know, I we have a 6 a.m. class three times a week, and I actually feel kind of guilty about that. But, you know, I've talked to some of the people that come to it, and that's the only time they can really make it. And uh, they're all doing fairly, really well. They do pretty decent on their sleep. But, you know, you got somebody that's coming in at 4.15 in the morning. Um, you know, what, I mean, it, they're just not going to be getting any adequate sleep. And so, you know, what, what – what do you think about that? What would be your commentary on someone who's trying to lose body fat, who is sleep deprived and they're beating themselves to death? You know, what, what are the chances of them achieve, achieving their goal? Yeah. I mean, in my experience, unless you, you know, unless we're talking about, um, extraordinarily young males, you know, like, um, males probably going through puberty, uh, probably have high enough, um, testosterone levels, to mitigate against that as long as they can do some crash recovery sleep. Um, but I don't think anybody else does. Um, and, and definitely most of the working world who, who's been out of, uh, you know, college for a decade or something, I just think it's, it's going to be counterproductive. And I have a lot of this clients. I have, a, I have a very small, uh, a very small consulting practice where I work with, um, a lot of executive types, um, and and they have the same problem. It's like, well, my day is so busy that I can only work out at, you know, 4 a.m. I have to get up at 4 a.m. and be on the treadmill at 5 or whatever, like, and I'm going to do my emails on the treadmill. And, um, you know, to those people, I just say, you know, what, you'd be much better off getting an extra hour of sleep um, and then taking, you know, anywhere between six and 10, five minute walks during your day, you know, yeah. park, park five minutes away from your office, uh, walking wise and, you know, walk to your office and walk back to your car for lunch and walk back to your office and, you know, take a couple of breaks in the day where you would go outside and walk or something like that. You're, you're actually going to be way better off than trying to do 30 minutes or an hour on the treadmill by getting that extra hour of sleep. I mean, something is short, something as small as half an hour, uh, of uh, inadequate sleep can have, can have huge metabolic effects, and it's definitely additive. So, if you don't sleep well for one night, it's nowhere near 
as detrimental as if you don't sleep well for 12 nights or 24 nights or 36. Like it gets, it gets worse and worse. Um, and you, you probably, I know you've heard me say plenty of times or, and heard others say, uh, talk about the correlation with, uh, physical and cognitive performance, uh, with sleep deprivation being comparable to intoxication with alcohol. Um, and we know that if you, you know, if you stay up for, um, you know, 24 consecutive hours, you perform like you have a blood alcohol of 0.1. And people go, well, okay, well, I'll never stay up 24 hours in a row. But if you sleep six hours a night for 11 nights in a row, you perform the same. And yeah. then if you keep going for 22 days of six hours a night, you perform as though you haven't slept for two days. And just like when you're drunk, you have no self-awareness of that. And right. so you're you're like, oh, I'm doing great. I'm feeling fine. Like I'm cranking. And um, and you're just not. And it, and it can be proven to you, you know, however it needs to be proven to you. I mean, you can do heart rate variability training and prove that you're always sympathetic. You can do salivary, you know, ASIs that have maybe DHEA ratios in them or all sorts of things. You can go to your doctor, get serum labs, you know, te get tested for metabolic syndrome or insulin sensitivity, do a two-hour glucose tolerance test. You know, you can do all these things and pretty clearly prove to yourself that no matter what you look like or feel like on the outside, you're getting worse. Um, you know, your body composition will probably shift if you haven't been working out at all and you get into the gym at 4.15 every day. You'll probably increase your insulin sensitivity in your muscles a little bit, but you're going to you know, you're going to increase the, uh, you know, you're going to decrease your overall body insulin sensitivity and you're still going to deposit more fat, but, um, you know, depending on your caloric restriction and all that stuff. But yeah, the short answer is I think it's a bad idea. Um, if it's absolutely your only option, um, which I've never seen that to be true, but if it's absolutely <laughs> your only option and there's no other time possible and the litmus test for this is, Hey, if I was going to give you $10 million, to successfully choose another time to work out, could you do it? The answer is always yes. So you can do it without the 10 million. Um, you know, but if it's absolutely your only time and you say there's, I can only work out at 5 a.m., then that workout should be, you know, it should be movement. <laughs> yeah. It should be uh, some moderate intensity skill work at the best and mainly mobility work, you know. Yeah. Um, that's that's about the only thing that you're going to benefit from at that time of the day. Yep, the Tai Chi type stuff. Um, you yeah. know, we talked about walking before, and I think so many people um, very undervalue the value of just being active throughout the day. You know, I think that's much more valuable than cranking on yourself all the time. Oh, and, yeah. uh, and to jump way back to when we started, you know, the SEALs, they do their hell week and all that stuff. And people don't realize that's to, to basically break people to see who can make it. It's right. kind of like two-a-days in football, and we've both done that. Um, yeah. You know, they don't do like two-a-days for like more than two weeks because they wouldn't have a team left. It's basically right. to see who who who's going to make it and who's not going to make it. And then they go into a more reasonable, yeah. you know, training plan. And, and so people think they run around. It's, uh, you know, the, the guy that's won the CrossFit Games, Rich Froning, for like the last five years. You know, his training is very moderate, you know, 60 to 70% all year round multiple times a day and he only dips into the into the into the uh the death squad the death jar uh when he competes you know and that's yeah. one of the reasons he's been so successful so you got these people that every time they come in they think they need to absolutely bury themselves uh um, yeah 
Well, there's so many memes on Twitter to tell them that, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, crush yourself or quit. You know, it's like, you're a loser if you don't yeah. put all the weight on the bar, you know? Um, uh, sleep when you're dead. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's one of my favorite. But, uh, yeah. you know, that's one of the reasons I, I created the, the saying, rest more for our gym, you know, so that rest more so that when you do want to go hard, you can. And you, you don't necessarily have to go hard all the time. And that's a hard thing to sell to people that, you know, you only need to work at a moderate, you know, type intensity. Um, you know, as a coach, I, I deal with people that have issues sleeping, um, you know, especially shutting the mind off. A lot of people get in bed and they're just racing all the time. And a lot of that is because they're just, they just aren't mindful and they're just caught up in their head. Um, we see a lot of people on sleeping pills. Could you kind of talk about sleeping pills and, and, you know, do they work and are they good for you? And what are the long-term side effects of them? Yeah. Yeah, so um, to touch back a little on on uh, what you're talk what you just alluded to at the beginning of that question was um, what we call initiation insomnia, people who are just too wired to go to sleep, and there's a pretty clear pathway for that. And we can talk about that if we have time today, and if not, uh, people can check that out on my site. I talk about that, um, but you know, sleeping pills. Um, are really a pharmacological trick, right? Um, if you look at the, well, uh, it's not super easy to uh, defend a, de a definitive diagnosis for, or de a definitive definition for sleep. Sleep itself um, is somewhat of a nebulous process, uh, and it's kind of hard to define because our language doesn't really define things. Uh, you know, absolutely, it's black and white language, a duplistic language, and so really the the best definition of sleep, ironically, is um, absence of being awake. Uh, and what that means, it's not as circuitous as it sounds, is that you have a lot of neurotransmitters in your brain that change when you sleep. And those, uh, there's a, what we call wake-promoting neurotransmitters, which makes certain areas of your brain more active when you're awake than when you're asleep. Uh, certain areas less active. Um, but it basically changes your brain chemistry around to where different, uh, different metabolic processes are being initiated by your brain. Um, and you're, of course, your body has uh, ch shifts as well. And you know, to be asleep uh, really requires you to be matched to the circadian rhythm in the first place, which is, as we know, entrained with the sunlight. Because it's not just your brain, right? It's not just this melatonin pathway through the SCN that's the important thing. It's like every, literally every cell in your body has a biological clock. And those all really have to be in sync for you to get the full benefit of sleep. What uh, sleeping pills do is they attack those wake-promoting neurotransmitters. So like histamine is one of the wake-promoting neurotransmitters. And so you can take an antihistamine, which gets rid of the wake-promoting aspect of you know, of uh, histamine. Um, you know, we know that as you um, exercise and think and, you know, active throughout the day, you build up a lot of adenosine in your brain from the breakdown of ATP. Um, and if you block adenosine, you know, and adenosine makes you tired, but you can block adenosine with caffeine and then that makes you feel more awake. So, all these stimulants and drugs uh, are taking advantage of one, maybe two at the best pharmacological tricks to say, well, we're going to act on this type of receptor. We're going to make a drug that looks like this, this neurotransmitter. And by attacking that, we're going to get this response. Um, what the research bears out, however, is, is not uh, that impressive. So really, it, it, every, every sleep drug that I've seen um, – 
And the literature on this is much more forgiving, uh, much more optimistic than my clinical experience. Um, you know, uh, but even the pharmaceutical companies sponsored research will tell you that every sleep drug out there affects negatively impacts sleep architecture. Um, the best research for uh, Ambien, for example, um, the best research showed that it uh, made people fall asleep uh, 13 minutes faster on average and get an extra 37 minutes of sleep. Um, now, if that were true, I would say, okay, that's not that bad. But what, if you look at their brainwaves, they look like somebody who's unconscious, not somebody who's not somebody who is um, asleep. And there's a, you know, there's a big difference between being unconscious and being asleep. So the normal things that are going on to restore your brain and body aren't going on when you're unconscious, just like they wouldn't be if you drank yourself into a coma or got hit in the head with a baseball bat. You would be unconscious. You wouldn't be asleep and, and uh, restoring your body. So, uh, you know, an article came out recently about, uh, you know, a, a pretty strong correlation between uh, death rates and people who take um, uh, prescription sleep medication, you, you know, on a frequent basis. And, and I can't quote the article right now. Um, it was it came out maybe three or four months ago. Um, but I, I want to say, I mean, it was significant. It was, I don't know, 14 years earlier or something. They died on average. So it was, it was a big deal. Um, and now I take that with a grain of salt as one research study. But, um, you know, my whole approach, much like your whole approach to health, is that, um, you know, the, the closer we can approximate what, what we know we're kind of meant to do, the healthier our bodies tend to be. Um, and I, I think sleep's no exception to that. So the only way to get good sleep is to get good sleep. <laughs> and uh, that, that can't be done through a pharmacological trick. Just like you can't take a pill to make up for exercise, or you can't take a pill to compensate for eating. Yeah, you can try, but eventually it's going to bite you in the ass. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. I think, was it you that I talked to that said you worked with like a law firm or something where the majority of their attorneys were on ambient? No, that wasn't me. That wasn't but you. That, that wouldn't surprise me. Okay. <laughs> so basically you're saying if you're on, on sleeping pills, you're just basically not going to re repair and restore uh, as optimally as you could. Is that, is that basically the, the bottom yeah. line with that? Yeah. I mean, if, if you look, you know, if you look at the sleep architecture, different sleeping pills do different things. Uh, sleeping drugs that interfere with slow wave sleep cycles are going to decrease how much testosterone and growth hormone you're secreting, how well your immune function is going. Um, you know, how well you're repairing the muscles that you've trained that day. Um, drugs that interfere with REM sleep are going to affect more of your cognition, your working memory, your executive functioning, you know, willpower, using that prefrontal cortex to simulate uh, possible paths in lives and being able to predict what's the most likely or the best path to take. All of that stuff suffers when you take uh, sleeping pills. Um, and, you know, what the other thing that I saw with when I was working with the SEALs and I've seen it um, time again with uh, the clients I have now is that when you don't sleep well, um, regardless of what else you're doing, uh, you have every other marker of, of poor health. Um, you know, over time, if you chronic, if you have chronic sleep debt, your insulin, you know, you, you start looking metabolically through the serum markers I can find just like somebody who's completely neglected their health and decided to eat at fast food 
every meal and never exercise. You look just like that person, regardless of what else you're doing. Gotcha. Yeah, and that's you know one of the reasons why I make sleep and rest such a, a huge priority for us, the people that are coming to see us, because they're usually driving their car like, a, like it was stolen. Um, what was I going to say? A little brain pause there. Um, oh, that's funny. I haven't had this happen to me before. I just had a brain You're sleep-deprived, man. <laughs> I probably am. <laughs> it's probably true. Um, I was going to say, with people that can't, you know, chill. I, wow, here's the question I was going to ask. I am human. Do you think that people's fear of sunlight has affected their ability to go to sleep? You know, everybody's, like, yeah. worried about skin cancer and covering up, and they're afraid to go out in the sun. Do you think, you know, people not getting natural light exposure, do you think that's kind of messed things up a little bit? Yeah, well, I mean, I definitely think uh, lack of sun exposure is a big player. Uh, whether the etiology of that is from fear or um, just disinterest and and uh, and the sun and being caught up on the rat wheel of American lifestyle, I don't know. Um, I'd say with my clients right now, um, it's probably the latter. Uh, you know, with the seals, it was just a, yeah. a simple matter of fact that they worked at night most of the time and slept during the day most of the time. Um, but I, I definitely think it has an impact. Um, I think that, uh, you know, skin cancer is, of course, a, a problem and a risk factor. Uh, ironically, we know that, you know, decreased melatonin uh, probably uh, predisposes you to uh, more cancers anyways. Uh, so, uh, you know, when you don't get enough vitamin D3 from the sun, you don't sleep well. Um, you know, you, if you start running into melatonin insufficiencies, um, you know, you're predisposing yourself to cancer for, uh, not going in the sun at that point, you know? So, <laughs> um, you know, I mean, cancer is a, cancer is a, a very, uh, very personal subject, very slippery. It has a lot of anxieties and fears around it. Um, you know, my my personal beliefs about it is is that it, it probably it's it probably uh, much higher tied to, um, you know, sugar and vegetable oils than it is most of the other things that we're that we're trying to attribute it to. There's pretty good, uh, you know, pretty good historical data for that is you know, when vegetable oils came into the market and when when sugar came into the market and when high fructose corn syrup came into the market and when we started seeing elevations of cancer rates. Um, so, I mean, that, that's kind of a, a tangential reply to that. But yeah. um, I, I definitely think that, uh, you know, 15 to 20 minutes of half your body being exposed into the sun uh, more days than not is a really good idea. I mean, you don't um, – that would be enough really just to kind of keep you sufficient uh, – and vitamin D3, you're not going to build up any excesses. So if you're deficient and you do 15 to 20 minutes a day, you're going to stay right where you're at probably. Um, if, you, if you're deficient and you can do maybe 30, 30 minutes a day, uh, you could very slowly over time sort of build up your vitamin D3 reserves. And, of course, vitamin D3, for any of your listeners who don't know, is not a vitamin at all. It's a hormone. Um, it's involved in over 300 reactions in your body. Um, almost all of those reactions, or perhaps all of those reactions, require magnesium as a cofactor. Um, and magnesium deficiency is really common as well. So, I mean, that, you know, the the metabolic milieu that is American or you know industrialized worlds right now um, is a mess, and it's hard to decipher. And I think that's why there's so much contradictory research out there right now is because everybody's scrambling in this incredibly 
complex array of potential um, you know, risk factors or uh, causal elements to any type of health uh, situation uh, to include diabetes or obesity or you know any of the any of the really common things um, and you know I again I think the only rational idea is to say well um, you know this stuff didn't exist um, not so long ago you know probably a hundred hundred years ago cardiovascular disease and cancers were significantly way 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 more rare per capita than they are now um, and if you you take that back further it's even more so uh, that's even more true and you know to reapproximate sort of the way we evolved is to the best you can and I'm not suggesting wearing a loincloth and living in a cave but yeah, um, eating what you're designed to eat, and moving the way you're designed to eat, and sleeping you're the way you're designed to sleep, and getting out in nature and doing, getting a little bit of sunlight and getting some movement, and all that stuff, and controlling stress, it's really what I work on 90% of the time in a in a annual program with my clients. I mean, that's 90% of what we talk about. Yeah. The medical part, medical interventions, and hormonal tweaks and those things. That's like that's literally only 10% of the game. Yeah. Uh, I spend a year just changing people's uh, belief systems and, and, uh, behavior. Yeah. Yeah. I think a, a, a lack of nutritionally dense food in general is a, is a big contributor to the, to the quagmire of, of disease that we have modern diseases anyways. Um, what would you, you know, to people that are just really struggling with sleep, um, you know, besides the ones that need to go get a, like a sleep study with have like sleep apnea, like I do, um, what, uh, what is it like if you have over a 17 inch neck, you pretty much have sleep apnea. That's, that's pretty much what I've, what I've, what I've been told. Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't know about that. I don't well, know that that's, that's what, true. that's what I was told anyway. So if there's it's true about, or not, there's only about 50% of the people with sleep apnea that actually have, um, you know, the, uh, phenotype that we would expect, you know, the, that actually you know have the build and the body look the way we expect, uh, the classic findings of sleep apnea patients to be, you know, 50% of them are, you know, lean, uh, you know, very lean, small, you know, men and women. So, um, I don't, I don't think there's great metrics on, on attributing it to body type, but for a guy like you, I mean, just as thick in the shoulders and neck and all that stuff as you are, that's just a lot of meat you know, yeah. smashed in your throat at night. This is all there is to it. I mean, that's true. you're just, you're a big dude. And, uh, you know, if you and if, uh, you know, for bigger guys, oftentimes sleeping on their side will get rid of that, you know, because you're, yeah. no, you're no longer compressing that. Yeah, know? I definitely sleep a lot better on my side. What, what, what advice would you give to people that are just having a hard time, you know, getting to sleep? You know, they lay down and they just sit there and they toss and they turn and they toss and they turn and they toss and they turn. What, what kind of tips can you, can you give people that are pretty simple? Yeah, so the, the first, you know, my first interventions with that, um, and that's, again, what we call initiation insomnia which also commonly leads to what we call psychophysiologic insomnia, which means you're not sleeping because you're worried about not sleeping. Um, so you're, you know, the first step is like to think of your room as an environment to sleep in, right? Like that's what your bedroom is for. That's what your bed is for. Um, if you, you know, if you're uber wealthy and you have like a suite in your bedroom, okay, maybe different, you have couches and so forth, but your bed is for sleep and sex only. Now, keep in mind, I didn't say that you can only have sex in your bed. I always get accused of that. You can have sex anywhere you want, but I'm your glad bed you, is for sleep. I'm glad you clarified that. That's, that's, that's very, very important. I get bashed over that over and over again. Uh, so, um, 
you know, your bed is for sleep and sex only. You have to make that rule first. You have to engage that belief system and say, it's not time to check my iPhone. It's not time to check my email. It's not time to be on my tablet or my computer or watching a television or reading a book even. Like your, your bed is to get into and go to sleep. And the more you ritualize any behavior, just like when you're training people um, to work out, and especially people who are you know, somewhat um, fitness naive, you know, uh, who haven't been through a whole lot of you know, maybe high school or college sports or something like that. And this is a new concept to them. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm guessing that your, your experience would be a lot like mine. And just those people, the hardest thing is getting them to routinely engage the behavior of exercising. And you do that through effort discounting, right? And like setting them up for success. So when you get out of bed, the only clothes available to you are your workout clothes and you put your workout clothes on and then you can choose not to work out from there if you want to. Um, you know, but that's, you know, an effort discounting thing. You know, you set your time, like this is the time I'm watching an exercise. You do the same with sleep. So I always tell people, um, you know, there, there's a whole, there's a whole pathway of, you know, essentially light saturation toxicity from artificial lighting, uh, including computers and recreational media, all that type of stuff. That's kind of a different uh, side of the coin. I don't, I don't think we want to go down that rabbit hole right now because it gets pretty geeky and it would take quite a long time. But just know that that light is negatively impacting your ability to sleep and your cue for going to sleep is not having light in your eyes. Um, and so, you know, People who try to work on their computers right up until the minute where they go to sleep or watch television right up until the minute they go to sleep, they're going to have a much harder time of going to sleep. So this is what I say. Step one is make your, like, make your bed for sleep and sex only. That's it, which means you get rid of everything in your room that's not uh, necessary for sleep and sex, right? So... You're, you don't have an alarm clock because you don't need to be able to see – or you can have an alarm clock, but you don't need to see it. So it can be down in a drawer or something. There's no television in your room. You know, you know, there's not books on your bedside table because you don't read books in bed. You, know, you don't use your iPhone there. All of these things. You get rid of all the electronics in the room. You make yourself a pact that um, I have a ton of shit to worry about. I know you're super important. You're super busy, and you have a ton of stuff to worry about, and you have a ton of stuff to do. Okay, make yourself two lists. One side of the list says, here's everything I have to do tomorrow. The other side of the list says, here's everything I'm going to worry about tomorrow. I don't want to forget to worry about this stuff, even though I can't do anything about it. I want to make sure I worry about it tomorrow. And now you make yourself a pact. I have this wonderful sleep environment. I have everything I need to worry about written down on this journal next to my bed. And then... I'm going to lay down, I'm going to, before I go to bed, many hours before I go to bed, I'm going to figure out what time I need to work out, wake up tomorrow when my brain is working really well. Uh, I'm going to make that decision. Now I'm going to set my alarm clock for that time. And I am not going to get out of bed until that alarm clock goes off. And I'm not going to look at the clock until that alarm clock goes off. And if you wake up in the middle of the night, don't make a big deal of it. Just wake up and go, oh, I woke up. I'm going to lay here and breathe and relax. And if any of those ideas start f coming into your mind uh, about the things you have to do or the things you have to worry about, you just, just like meditation, you just push those out of your mind. You're just like, nope, I'm going to think about that in the morning. That's already on the list. I'm going to think about that in the morning. And the best I'm going to be at handling that list is after I've rested. And then you don't, the worst thing you can do is try to go to sleep. You need to lay there and accept the fact that you're awake 
but that you're relaxing. And preferably you're doing muscle relaxation exercises, you know, progressive muscle relaxation, active muscle relaxation, breathing exercises, any type of meditative thing that your or mindfulness thing that you're really skilled at or that you really like, you just lay in bed and do that and you let it be okay, whatever happens. Um, so that's how you fall asleep and that's how you stay asleep. If you wake up in the middle of the night, if you don't look at your clock, you don't have any idea when that alarm is going to go off, right? So you're going to lay there and, and relax until the alarm goes off. And if the alarm goes off 15 minutes later, you're probably not going to go to sleep. But if your alarm is going to go off four hours later, you're probably going to fall back to sleep at some point. And then just the more you practice those techniques, the more and more likely you'll be to sleep through the night and to get to sleep easy. Um, that, and that's what's worked best for all of my clients and friends and relatives and all that. That's good. I mean, it's funny because, you know, you give the struggle analogy and people that come to me that are struggling with like fat loss and that sort of thing. You know, I tell them it's like quicksand. The harder you try, <laughs> the more you sink, yeah. you know, yeah. so that's a that's a really good point you made. You know, over the years, I've taken, you know, all sorts of things to help me sleep, everything from GHB before they made it illegal to, you know, like ZMA and magnesium and things like that. And those things have helped me. Uh, you know, I recently got to try your your sleep cocktail product. And it, it worked very, very well. Um, could you talk about, you know, there's all sorts of things on the market, some things good, some things bad. Could you talk a little bit about your thought process behind designing that and why you put it out? Yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, the, the, the really short, short, simple answer is that I put that out because I promised the SEALs I would. Um, <laughs> and, and, yeah, they're a dangerous group guys to upset. So, um, but, you know, what? You know, as we alluded to earlier in the conversation, that all of my understanding and interest in sleep came uh, while working with the SEALs. And it wasn't my job. Uh, that wasn't what I was brought on to do. I was actually running the sports medicine facility. But, um, you know, what I, uh, what I felt like their biggest problem was was sleep. And so, I, you know, I just spent all my time trying to understand the physiology of sleep and calling up experts in this field and going to train with people and taking courses and, you know, studying anything I could to see if I could figure out, um, what we could do. Uh, you know, the vast majority, uh, some estimates were up to 75% of SEALs were taking Ambien every night. Um, and obvious, and oftentimes three or four times the recommended dosage of Ambien, um, and having a few cocktails to boot. Um, and so, you know, my, my solution you know, to this was, okay, well, let's get some normal sleep and see what happens. Um, and there's a lot involved in getting normal sleep. And, you know, like I, like I said earlier, the more, the deeper I get in this rabbit hole, the more, you know, the more little, um, uh, branches I feel I, I find in the rabbit hole, you know, it, it, it really just impacts every aspect of health and wellness. Um, and so, you know, I originally just came up with the idea, like we talked about earlier, that, you know, seals are working at night and sleeping during the day. They probably need vitamin D3. So I figured out what was the best dose of vitamin D3 based on tons of literature and tons of research and tons of serum labs from my guys, uh, tons of conversations with, um, you know, people like Rob Wolf and Dan Party. Um, and I said, okay, that's it. I fixed it. You know, it's a vitamin D3 deficiency and they were a vitamin D3 deficient and it did help, but it wasn't the solution. And then I found out, well, magnesium is a cofactor. So let's add magnesium. So that we would add as a natural calm. And then, you know, we just slowly pieced together the melatonin production pathway. Um, and then for those people that have a hard time falling asleep at the beginning of the night, um, 
you know, we found that adding just a very small amount of melatonin in the product uh, would would improve uh, the sleep. And you know, what the seals were doing is literally going around to three or four different shops uh, all over San Diego and buying you know a bottle of these pills and a bottle of this liquid and a bottle of this powder, um, and then just trying to sort of concoct every night what I had. Uh, you know, what I'd recommended, which is now all in one powder, like the, like you've tried at paleo. Um, and, uh, you know, there's nothing magical in there. There's no pharmacological tricks in there. Uh, the one, you know, the one sort of pharmacological trick and it is that, um, you know, GABA does not cross, cross the blood brain barrier well, unless it has, um, a molecule on it to help it get across the blood brain barrier. Um, and so there, you know, there's uh, phenol GABA in there or pH GABA in there. Um, but apart from that, you know, that, I mean, that's just a way to get GABA in your brain, which normally is elevated when you sleep, uh, or when you start falling asleep. Um, but everything in there is just meant, uh, to support you in production of your brain's own production of melatonin. Um, melatonin does lots of downstream effects as we talked about in helping the brain and body, uh, go to sleep. Um, but you know, that's, that's really all it is. I mean, we found a lot of these things to be, um, deficient in guys. Uh, some of that you can find through serum and some of that you find just by saying, well, if I give the guy a little tryptophan, he sleeps better. He probably had some tryptophan deficiencies, right? Cause tryptophan isn't going to be, isn't be going to become melatonin unless it needs to. Um, unless your body, you know, is demanding that. So, I mean, it, that's really all it is. You know, it's, it's everything from L-tryptophan to melatonin, um, in that pathway, everything that's required for that. And then a little bit of GABA just to initiate. And, um, you know, the longest half-life of anything in there is, is five hours. Um, and that's a worst case. It's four to five hours. And so, you know, by morning, pretty much anything anything in there is gone. Um, and in fact, people with terminal insomnia, people who wake up, you know, two or two or three hours before they want to and can't get back to sleep. Um, I don't even have those people take it at the beginning of the night. I say, just take it when you wake up and then go back to sleep for two hours and you'll be fine. Cool. So is this something you could take on a regular basis for a long term or is it a short term thing? And there's melatonin in it. And I've heard in a couple different places that if you take melatonin on a regular basis, it can cause some, some issues for you. Um, yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I I think that's I think that's true. Um, I mean, I had read some of that, and then probably about five or six years ago, I talked to Dan Party about it. Um, and for any of your people who don't know him, he just he's a brilliant uh, you know PhD neuroscientist who just who's really smart about um, physiological cascades and during sleep and other other uh, neuroregulatory pathways. Um, and, you know, he and I had a long discussion about that. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's one of those things that is really hard to prove in humans because the type of studies you would need to do would be, you know, like doing brain slices afterwards. Um, and a lot of people aren't going to volunteer to have their brain cut out um, after a sleep deprivation session or something like that. Um, but, you know, there, there's a lot of sort of suggestive science around the idea that, you could possibly downregulate melatonin production, um, and what's probably much more likely is that by taking these mega doses of melatonin, it's just like taking a mega dose of any other uh, hormone, is that you're going to downregulate the intracellular receptor for that. Um, so then, 
you, you know, if you have one tenth of the receptors, you need 10 times the dose of melatonin, which means if now if you don't take melatonin, your body's not going to produce that much melatonin. Um, you know, the human, the human pineal gland will only secrete somewhere between about point or about three micrograms to six micrograms from sundown to sunup. Um, so you see people taking a 10 milligram melatonin tablet. I mean, come on, you're, I mean, you're talking about possibly 30 times more than their brain would have produced over a 12 hour period. Um, and often that's not even sustained release. So they're going to get all of that in a couple of hours. So there, there's probably some value. There's probably some reasonable, um, uh, fear around that. And, uh, for that reason, I've definitely steered well clear of that. Now, sublingual melatonin will go right into the bloodstream and you can dose pretty accurately as you know this product's a drink so um it go it has a first pass metabolism of melatonin through the liver before it's going to get into um anywhere else and so i have three micrograms in there which is then the worst case scenario is that you would absorb all three micrograms which is almost impossible because it's going to go through the liver first you're probably going to get one and a half to maybe two milligrams or i'm sorry not milligrams micrograms of melatonin, which shouldn't be um, a physiological assault, right? It's not, you're not going super physiologic. It would be a normal amount of melatonin to be in your brain at that time of the day, at that time of the night. So hopefully your brain will continue to use all the other substrates to produce more and more melatonin through the night and keep you awake or keep you asleep. Awesome. So this is something you could use on a regular basis or you could just use it as needed. Yeah, I mean, it, it all depends on what your specific issues are. Um, okay. You know, if I tell people, if you're one of those folks that, uh, you know, like the boot camp we talked about, these people are like, the only time I can ever work out is 5 a.m., so I'm, I'm never going to get more than six hours of sleep. I say, well, all right, we'll get the highest quality of sleep you can for six hours. Like sure. That's the best I, best I can do. That person probably needs to take it for the rest of their life or as long as they're going to sleep six hours a night. Um, you know, you can use it, uh, piecemeal for, uh, intermittently for jet lag. Uh, you can use it for, Hey, I'm just in a high stress period. I'm, I need this to help me get to sleep at night. That's cool too. Um, you know, it really, it really depends. I'd say if, if you're sort of a lifelong poor sleeper, you know, I would work on all the sleep hygiene stuff that's on the site. Um, and, you know, probably do the, the supplement, you know, for, I don't know, six months to a year or something to really, until you, you're just really sure that all your behavioral changes are locked in and you're getting, you know, your solid sleep every single night. Um, and you know, you can just kind of taper off of it here and there and see, see how well you do it without it. Um, but some of these deficiencies, uh, deficient pathways take a long time to sort of regenerate, um, yeah. normal physiology. I know that from firsthand experience. Doc, tell us yeah. where we can learn more about this product and, and learn more about you. Uh, so I have, I have, uh, my own site, docparsley.com. It's just docparsley.com. Um, uh, you know, sadly there's actually less information on that site than there's on the sleep cocktail site, which we just launched. And that is, uh, sleep cocktails with an S, uh, .com. And both sites have information about, um, sleep hygiene and, optimal performance and a little bit about nutrition and all those types of things. Uh, obviously 90% of both sites are geared around sleep. 
Uh, there's lots of other podcasts on there. So what I like in blogs, there's plenty of uh, podcasts I've done and plenty of podcasts I recommend and talks I've done and so on and so forth. It's it's all on the on that site. Um, so I'd say, you know, depending on what you're looking to do, you know, if you want to try the sleep product, you can you can get there from my site, but it's just as easy to go directly to sleepcocktails.com. But if you want to learn more about what I do, my philosophy, how I work with folks. Um, and just to be clear to your listeners out there, I'm sorry, but I'm not currently taking any new clients. I get asked that just about every day. And if, uh, if anybody knows any good referrals for me, I'd be, I'm always looking for docs who can, uh, who can, or who approach medicine in a similar way so I can make recommendations. Yeah. They're, they're very hard to find. So anybody out there that wants to go to a naturopath school or, become an MD and actually look at fixing root causes. There's a huge, huge market for that. Doc, thanks, yeah. thanks for having you on. Um, I'm sure we'll end up chatting again sometime, but um, just going to make a few announcements for uh, for people that are on here. I, I don't know exactly when this is going to be released, so we'll throw it out there, and hopefully it's still relevant when this comes on. But in, in July, I'm going to be in Edmonton, Alberta, my hometown. I'm going home for the first time since, like, 2002, and I'm going to be teaming up with a guy named Dean Somerset, and you can, uh, you can go onto his website. I believe it's deansomerset.com. And I'm going to be doing a one-day seminar with him. I believe it's on the, it's on the Sunday, uh, the weekend of the 4th of July. And I'm going to be covering, you know, business aspects of coaching and how to, if, you know, if you want to open a gym or all those sort of things. And Dean's going to be doing a lot of hip anatomy stuff. And we'll be going over the main lifts. It's going to be a great, a, a lot of fun. It's going to be a great day. Um, so we're going to be doing that. And then uh, we've got uh, Charles Mayfield is putting on an event uh, in October, which is myself, Rob Wolf, John Wellborn, Dave Werner, Matt Lalonde, and Charles Mayfield will be doing, it's called the Cube Summit. And uh, I'm sure we'll have a link to it uh, when we release this podcast. But that's in October in Atlanta, and that's going to be a blast. I mean, that is just such a unbelievable lineup. I, I'm very humbled to be a part of that. It's uh, it's going to be going to be awesome and uh also please support uh kefir uh the body I iofm here uh you can do that by buying carbonite uh carb backloading or any of his other products that he has uh, if you want to support me and help spread the word about you know resting and taking in self-care is, is the best way for long-term success and health uh you can buy one of my jim laird uh rest more t-shirts gym laird uh you see what i did there uh, you can get that on our website, gymlaird.com, and you can go under apparel and order one of our T-shirts and kind of mess with people, you know, when you're walking through the store and they see rest more on the back of your T-shirt. What the hell does that mean? Um, that would be a fun conversation for you. You can help spread the word about self-care. Um, and if you have any questions for me, um, you can email me at jimlaird, G-Y-M-L-A-I-R-D.com. Uh, if you want anybody, you know, that you want me to interview or any questions you want me to address, I'd be happy to, uh, to do that for you. So have a great day and thank you very much. You've been listening to the Jim Laird show with your host, Jim Laird. If you'd like to hear more, log on to body.io. Don't miss the next episode of the Jim Laird show when he'll probably say something inappropriate but unexpectedly insightful.